This morning we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy, but we're going to begin our time in the Word today in Acts chapter 6. If you're familiar with the story of Acts, if you're familiar with the story of the early church, you know that at this moment in the history of the New Testament church, it's growing pretty rapidly. Thousands and thousands of people are hearing about Jesus, believing that he is the Christ and turning to him alone for salvation. The gospel is going forth and lives are being transformed. And can you imagine the excitement among the early church? Can you imagine the joy among the disciples as they see exactly what Christ promised them taking place? That these past few years of following Jesus was not all in vain. That it is continuing just as he promised it would. But in the midst of all that rapid growth and in the midst of all that excitement, a problem arises. With growth comes opportunities for problems, right? We all know this. We've seen it in our, hopefully, or uh, not too much in our lives, but also in the church and other organizations. There's certainly a problem that comes to the forefront in Acts chapter 6. Here's what the problem is, according to verse 1. A complaint was offered by Greek-speaking Jews, called here Hellenists, that their widows were not being properly taken care of in the daily distribution of materials to those who were in need. The twelve, the apostles, begin to see a limit and their ability to care for properly all the people who have come into their church all the people who have given their lives to Christ. There's an inability because of the number of people who have now joined the family of God to accurately care for them. But the apostles know that they do need to meet these needs. These needs need to be met because they are part of the family of God. And we as a family of God are called to take care of one another. We're called to love one another as an expression of how God has loved us in Christ. And so the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, establish a solution to the problem in verses 2 to 4. Here's what the Word of God says. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not that one is more important than the other, but that both are needed. And we have been called to do this. We need someone else to take care of the serving of the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this moment, as we follow the New Testament's teaching of the early church, we encounter the, the deacons. For the first time in the history of the church, we encounter the role of deacon in the New Testament. The apostles know that God wants us to care for ourselves because of his care for us. And in order to do that, in order to do that in a, a organized fashion, in an effective, healthy fashion, they set apart men from among themselves in Acts chapter 6, to be deacons. A second formal role of responsibility entrusted to the church for the church's care. Now let's take note for a moment of the way that this role, deacons, are different than the role of the apostles, later defined by the role of pastor and elder, specifically the preaching and teaching ministry and prayer. So we're thinking of two roles here and the work of those roles. The apostles had the responsibility, according to Acts 6, of teaching, of leading through the Word of God, and of praying for the people of God. That was their primary responsibility given to them. God had given teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to help them in greater ways understand the mystery of the faith. And the apostles say, we need to make this our priority. But we also recognize there are other needs in the church. So deacons were called to speak to the other needs of the church, to be sure that the needs of the church, all the needs, were being met. In this particular case, it was daily distribution. But we can see this being set up to take care of other pastoral care needs as they will arise in the growing people of God. In terms of the ministry of the church, then, we see two specific groups of men in Acts 6, who are called to different responsibilities. And these are reflected in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
we see a group of men called to prayer in the ministry of the word, and we have another group within the church who are called to act of service. Deacons are called out to support the work of the pastor elder or the apostles in Acts 6. Pastor elder is not the same, a different title, similar role in the church. And the deacons are called to serve the pastor elder as they are about the business of preaching and teaching the word of God and praying for the people of God. So deacons are called up as specific needs arise in the life of the church to meet those needs as an expression of God's providential care for his people. And let's make sure we understand that deacons are assigned to specific needs, specific needs. So as a a need arises, the question of the congregation is, who can or who can we set apart who is obviously qualified to be set apart to function in this way to serve the local body of Christ? So we have deacon for widows, for instance. We can have a deacon for finance. We can have a deacon for facilities. All needs within the church that we as a church set apart qualified people to serve and meet those needs. Now, before we move on to the qualifications that are laid forth in 1 Timothy 3, I want us to be sure that we see the gift of God here for us. These roles, pastor, elder, and deacon that we're considering today. They are a gift from God to the church, right? I mean, it is incredible to me that in God's foresight of how he's gonna organize the church, he would know that there were gonna be needy people in the church and that he would, in the design and start of the church, make provision for our needs through the establishment of the role of deacon. Isn't that a good God? that he would accommodate, that he would think about us, our needs, and make provision for those needs. And as a pastor, I'm particularly grateful for Acts chapter 6 because it reminds me that men are limited. Even apostles are limited. Or they come to the point where they recognize, hey, I cannot do everything. I can't be all things to all people. That's not my responsibility. I need to know my limits I need to do what only I can do. And then we need other people in the family of God, the body of Christ, to step up and do what only they can do. And that's very freeing for me, if I could be honest. I do feel the pressure a lot of times to to be more than I can be. And I'll just confess to you guys, I cannot be everything you need me to be, right? God's called me to a specific work, to do a specific thing, and we need others around us to step up and do what only they can do to ensure that ministry actually happens in a way that glorifies God and meets our needs as a church. So Acts 6 is refreshing and freeing, reflected in 1 Timothy 3. Pastors are called to be pastors, elders are called to be elders, and deacons are called to be deacons, and we need both in order to be able to function as a church. Now, as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, we're not so much concerned with the work of deacon any longer as we are concerned with the qualifications of deacon. Who is qualified to serve as a deacon in the church? We already had some qualifications offered in Acts 6, right? Men of good repute who are full of wisdom and the Spirit. How do those expand? How does Paul expand those first two requirements in 1 Timothy 3 so that we have a greater understanding of the kinds of person that should stand in this particular role for the church? So let's look at our text today, 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, and see the qualifications that are outlined here in the text. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is continuing the discussion of of leadership or provision in the church that he began earlier in 1 Timothy 3 when he was talking about overseers. 
And now, likewise, he is talking about the role of deacon in the church and who should be qualified to sit in that office as Timothy is setting things in order in Ephesus. And what I think Paul does here is he expands the qualifications that are outlined by the apostles in Acts 6. So let's, let's consider the two qualifications listed in Acts 6 and how these additional qualifications expand our understanding of what it is that we should be looking for for a person who is being considered for the office or the role of deacon. Qualification one, deacons are to be followers of Christ with good reputations. Men of good repute, we saw in Acts 6. And a lot of the things we see on the page here in 1 Timothy 3 are expansions of that idea. That people who are going to step into the role of deacon need to be good reputa- have good reputations and be followers of Christ. They are to be thought of or well thought of by those inside the church and those outside the church. We see that in verses 8 to 10. They must be dignified, worthy of respect, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Deacons are to have character that commends Christ. If you're going to be a deacon, if you're going to be set apart within the church to lead in service, to represent Christ before the people of God, and then to represent the church to those outside the church, you have to have a character that commends Christ, that promotes Christ, that makes people want to know more about Christ. You need to be worthy of respect, dignified. You're going to be a a proven commodity both in your home and in the household of God. You're going to show fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and people are going to know there's something different about you. Even among Christians, there's something different about the way that you love the Lord and that you want to serve the church and serve the gospel. You're not double-tongued, you're truthful, you're transparent, and you're self-controlled, according to verse 8. You have a character that commends Christ. As I said with elders, whenever we're considering someone for the role of deacon, here's what the response should be of everybody in the church. Of course. Of course. What's the need? Oh, you've nominated that person? Of course they should be a deacon, right? It should be no surprise. They should be proven. We should have been able to watch their lives, watch the way they handle their households for years, seeing them always choose to promote the gospel in their home and in the church and then setting them apart because of the way they've already led to lead within the church. Men, deacons, are to be followers of Christ with good reputations. Secondly, deacons are to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Let's see how Paul expands that idea here in 1 Timothy 3. They are to hold firm the gospel and be devoted to its mission. Verse 9. The people who are being considered for this specific role are to understand the work of Christ and want to serve in any way they can the mission of Christ. They believe fully the gospel. The gospel has taken root in their heart. And here's what they say. I want to do whatever I can to free the church up to be able to focus on the ministry of the gospel to free the pastors up so that they can do their role in proclaiming the gospel. I'm going to let them focus on that because I believe in the importance of that role, that work. So I'm going to do these other works to give them the ability to do what only they can do because of how much they believe in the power of the gospel. They desire to serve and enable gospel teaching. They work to protect the church to enable gospel witness. And they further allocate their own resources for the work of the gospel and the way that they manage their household and the way they spend their money. Deacons then, if we're talking about kind of a general definition, deacons are lead servants who have displayed over a long period of time faithfulness to Christ and his bride. And they are essential to a healthy, functioning church. So here's what we do as a people. When a specific need arises, we consider who among us 
has evidenced over a long period of time leadership and serving in that particular area. And then we ask them to be a lead servant in leading the church and meeting that need. So let's, let's make a, a really big important note here of caution. The fact that there are deacons in the church does not mean that you are off the hook for serving, right? But all of us who are members of this body have been called to serve this body. And you, if you are in Christ, have been given by the Spirit of God spiritual gifts that you are meant to steward well and serve the local body of Christ. Can we all agree on that? If you don't know your spiritual gifts, come talk to one of us. We're going to help you figure out because you need to be serving the body. But it is also true that amongst all of us who are called to serve, there will be people who serve uniquely, who are worthy of being emulated in the way that they serve, who can give leadership to an area of service and call others around them who are similarly minded to do that work together. Lead servant doesn't excuse other servants. It just means they're leading in the act of service and we are willing to follow them as we seek to serve the church. And we need a healthy body of lead servants to function well. Let me give you an example of how this has happened in our own church. Some years ago, when I first got here, we began looking at the security on our campus. And we noticed that when the buildings were built some 60, 70 years ago, the same security needs that we have today, the same security concerns that we have today were not present back then, right? When you came to church in the 50s and 60s, you didn't worry about the same things or have the same hesitations that you may have today. And so the buildings reflect that. You could get from one side of the building to the other side of the building, all three interconnected buildings, pretty quickly. Well, here's the issue. We have miners in this building over here to my right and your left, and we want to make sure they're secure. We want to make sure that when you as a parent drop off your preschooler or your kid or your student, that you know that as much as is humanly possible, they're going to be safe and being taken care of when they're at our church. And so we immediately recognized there were some flaws in our security, some flaws in our building design that we needed to accommodate. And so we began to ask certain men in our church who had expertise in security to come help us figure out how to secure our buildings as best as possible. So we, in, we engaged a guy named Brian Benson, who is a faithful brother, faithful minister, who served our country well, and unfortunately now has been sent to that pagan, pagan state to the north of us, Oklahoma, as a missionary. So be praying for the Benson family. But he helped us establish some parameters. And now a, another faithful guy in our church his name is William Brantley, who's also a police officer, has stepped in to take on the mantle of leadership to continue that forward. And we've surrounded them with other faithful men to come alongside them to help make sure that our campus is as safe as humanly possible on a Sunday morning. Friends, that's how the work of deacons should work. That's how it should happen. There's a need that arises. We set someone apart to help lead, to move our church in a direction that accommodates that need, and they call others around them to carry out the work. That's how it should work. A specific need that's attached to a specific person that leads out in ministry. So I guess that means we're going to be setting William apart for deacon in the near future. So William, wherever you are on the campus, congratulations. <laughs> now, why is this an important discussion for us? especially as Baptists and especially as First Baptist Church. Well, first of all, we need to remember this. I think for a long time, not our church specifically, but churches have gotten lazy. Here's what I mean by that. Anytime there's a need, anytime there's something that needs to happen in the church because of how busy we already are, we think we just need to hire somebody to take care of that need. That is not God's design for the church. You are the provision for the need. Right? And there are certain people that are set apart and, and need to be set apart and be paid by the church in order to facilitate ministry. But we cannot afford to pay someone to account for every need in our church, right? So we need people, godly people who work nine to five jobs, but who also feel called to lead in service to step in and say, you know what? As a commitment to this body, as, as a desire to follow Christ and be an example to others of his service to us, 
I want to lead out in this ministry, and I'm not going to get paid anything for it. And, what an, and here's, the, here's the beauty. You're going to get some incredible rewards in heaven. Now, you're going to give them back to Christ, but you can look forward to the day when you're going to be rewarded in heaven, right? That's great. So we have to recognize that, that we all have to work together in order to make this thing work. We can't hire everything. We need people to lead and serve. Secondly, we need some clarity in the roles of pastor, elder, and deacon, specifically in the Baptist church. And that's because for a, a long time, certainly in the church I grew up in, there was confusion over what a pastor elder did and what a deacon did. And when you conflate and confuse the two roles and offices, you have an opportunity to create division. You have an opportunity to create conflict. And, and many of you who've grown up in the church, if you haven't, then I praise the Lord for you not knowing about this side, the dirty side of the church. But in seminary classes, there was no shortage of jokes about a pastor's interaction with a deacon body. Because for a long time, it was very unhealthy. And I think it's because we assigned the responsibility of elder to deacon when the deacons were not qualified to serve as elders. But we've also expected elders to serve as deacons, and we resent them when they don't function as, as deacons. So clarity is very helpful to make sure that we are operating as closely in alignment with the structure that is put forward in the Scripture as we can. Deacons are lead servants who free up the pastor and elders to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. And so we're asking the deacons to come alongside to meet the physical, tangible needs of our church, to be the, the first responders in pastoral care moments so that we can focus on preaching and teaching the Word of God and praying. Not that we never do those things, but that there's an accommodation for the number of people that we have to make sure all of our needs are met, to make sure that when you're in the hospital, you have someone who comes and visits you, to make sure that when you're in a moment of crisis, you have someone who's available to you. When you lost, when you have a loss in your family, that you have someone who can care for you in that moment. We need these things to function properly in order for us to be healthy as a church. So let's talk about clarity here. As a church, we have been on a journey to ensure the governance that has been established in years past in our church, to make sure we understand what it means to be elder-led and congregationally governed, separate and apart from the work of deacons. And so I, I just encourage us and challenge us as we walk through today and we continue to walk forward to make sure that we are not thinking about elders and pastors as deacons and we're not thinking about deacons as elders and pastors. There's a distinction on purpose. So here's the question, Jared, who holds you accountable as, a, as the lead pastor of this church? The pastors and elders do. And ultimately you do because I'm ultimately responsible to the whole congregation. But immediately in the moment when I sit around our leadership table with our pastors and elders, they are the ones who hold me immediately accountable. Immediately. And if anything rises above what they believe is proper for me as a senior pastor, then that comes to you as the church membership, and you are my ultimate source of accountability. Well, what's the role of deacons? To serve the church. That's what they do. They lead in service. They're not given any oversight responsibility at all in the church. They are called to lead in serving. Pastor elders are called to lead in oversight. Both of those roles are ultimately accountable to the entire congregation. And that's how we as a church have established our governance, and that's how we are moving forward as a church. So deacons are going to be assigned to specific ministries, and they're going to lead out in those specific ministries in order to free the pastors and elders up to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. And that's how we'll function, ultimately accountable to the entire membership of the church. Because we believe, convictionally, that that's the closest expression of governance that we find in the scriptures. Now, let's dive into two important issues regarding qualifications of deacons. We've already seen the, the larger categories of qualifications that they must be of good repute, good reputation, and that they must uh, be full of the spirit and of wisdom. But there are two qualifications that are generally uh, disagreed on 
in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. And these are things that we need to consider as a church. This is another moment where expository preaching forces us to consider things that we may not always want to consider, right? Uh, uncomfortable things. And the two things, two issues that are introduced to us that we need to consider this morning are the issues of divorce and the issues of the role of women. And I know what you're thinking. Jared, do you just really enjoy taking beatings? Like, why would you go through this again, <laughs> right? And I, you know, I, I didn't fully understand the scope of everything that First Timothy had in play whenever we decided to work through this text this summer, but it has been a joy, but it has also been difficult. So I ask for your prayers this morning. I ask for your prayers because I, I understand the potential of offending. I know that all of us in this room love the Lord Jesus Christ and that we want to be as faithful as possible while also honoring the people who have come before us. I get that conviction. But here's what I also want us to do this morning. I also want us to commit to remembering that the word of God is our final authority. So can we all just agree on that? Everybody in here, the word of God is our final authority, and it's our responsibility as best as we can to see what the word of God has said. Not what other people have told us it says, but what the word of God has said, right? So there's a humility that's always required when we sit before the word of God. And here's the second thing we have to remember. Sometimes we misunderstand scripture. Do you know that? You're part of a Protestant tradition, and do you know why the Protestant tradition exists? Because somewhere along the way, church tradition began to get Scripture wrong. And a group of people said, that's not right, because the church has misunderstood what the gospel is teaching, and we need to make a correction. Sometimes we are imperfect people, we are imperfect people, and sometimes we misunderstand. So it's, in, it's incumbent upon us to constantly sit before the Word of God and make sure that we understand to the best of our ability what the Word of God is saying convictionally as a people. It's good to come back and make sure that what we have attested to believe is in accordance with what God has said. So, with all that in mind and with humility and prayer, let's talk about whether or not divorce is a consideration for a deacon and whether or not women have a possibility to serve as deacons. So issue number one, can a man that has been divorced serve as a deacon? Now this issue arises from verse 12, where in this Paul says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And so the question becomes, what is... Paul saying when he says a deacon must be the husband of one wife? And does divorce mean that he is unable to manage his own household well and permanently manage his household well? Is this a permanent disqualifier? Let's deal with the issue of being married to one wife first. What is Paul talking about here? There are a lot of opinions about what Paul is addressing here. I do not think he has divorce in mind. It's possible he could be talking about polygamy, that you shouldn't be married to multiple people. But it's also possible that he's trying to describe a trait, the kind of person that you should look for. You should be looking for the kind of man who is faithful and who has proven himself faithful over a long period of time. He is a one-woman kind of man, and he has displayed faithfulness to his own home in a way that will translate to faithfulness in the household of God. I think that's what Paul means there, but it does get a little bit complicated because if he's been divorced for an unbiblical reason and he's now remarried again, does that mean that he is the husband of more than one wife because he's kind of in an adulterous affair in this second marriage? Now, let me just say before we move on, I don't want anybody to feel condemnation if you have experienced divorce in here. That's not the goal of walking through the conversation surrounding this particular issue. Um, it's just to remind us that the issue of divorce is complicated, right? It's always nasty. It's always messy. It's never from a good place, whether you are at fault or not. And so we all have to just show each other grace as we deal and tiptoe around some of these very difficult issues and how they play out within the church. Okay, so we can all agree about that. So here's the question. Is it ever possible? Is it ever, does the Bible ever make allowance for divorce? And I think the answer is yes. I think we see that in Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 7. Matthew 5, if there's an adulterous affair, I think the Bible makes allowance, doesn't say you have to, but makes allowance for divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, if there's abandonment because of your faith, 
I think also abandonment attached to abuse, then you have the ability to get a divorce. Those are biblical reasons for divorce. And so here's the question. If the Bible makes an allowance for divorce in rare circumstances on occasion, then can we as a church uniformly say that any divorce, any time whatsoever is an automatic disqualification for service in any capacity in the church from that moment forward? I don't think we can say that. But it does get messy because that means that if we ever do consider someone for the office of deacon who has been divorced, we have to get up in that business a little bit. It means that we have to do some pastoral work. We have to consider, hey, tell me about the divorce. Was it before you were a follower of Christ or was it after you were a follower of Christ? What happened because of the divorce? Who was at fault? Has there been repentance? Was there restoration or reconciliation that was sought? Was the cause of the divorce a biblical reason for divorce such that your new marriage would not be considered to be an adulterous one? Or is there a period of time where we would say that that they were very young in their faith, and even if they were at fault, they have displayed over time the regenerating and renewing work of God in their life such that we feel comfortable setting them apart for the work of service. Now that's messy, but I also think it's biblical, and I also think it's faithful. Because I don't want to over-disqualify someone, right? There's no reason for us to add to what Scripture has said. Let's sit under what Scripture has said and do our best ability to make sure that we understand what it is that, that Paul is actually expecting of someone who is set apart to lead the church in this particular way. Now, I want to hold two things in balance here as I say that. In no way, in no way am I minimizing divorce. Right? And I think anybody in this room who's experienced it would also say you don't need to minimize it because it's bad. We're not minimizing divorce. And we're not lowering our teaching on marriage. So we hold marriage very highly here because of, of what it says about the gospel according to Ephesians 5. But even within those things, we live in a broken and fallen world. And it's important for us to within those boundaries, saying that you know, God hates divorce and that marriage is a good gift from God that displays the gospel, to be sure that within those parameters, we do as much as we can as the people of God to show grace, to impart grace, and to, to follow what has been clearly prescribed from Scripture, specifically as it relates to pastor, elders, and deacons. Okay, so is it possible for a deacon who has been previously, uh, for a man who has been previously divorced to serve as a deacon? I say it is possible. I say it's going to be a difficult journey to, to wade through the trauma of divorce, and they have to be willing to do that, Right? If they're not willing to have that conversation, then they're not ready to step in. But I do think we should be open to it and not have an immediate, immediate disqualifier if they've said that there's divorce in their history. Because I don't think that's what Paul means here. Okay? Everybody okay? Look to your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay. And let me just say as a reminder, guys, listen, we want to be a people of grace. Okay? And I'm not saying grace in the sense that there are no consequences ever to sin, because of course there are consequences to sin. But let's not enforce upon each other more consequences than God provides for in his word. That's called legalism, right? And so we need to be, we want to have truth and grace in the way that we approach the scripture all the time, okay? Truth and grace. All right, now, for the next one. Issue two. Can a woman serve as a deacon in the church? Is there a, is there a role for women as it applies to the office of deacons? Now this has uh, become an issue because of verse 11. So let's, let's go back to verse 8 and get some context rowing into verse 11. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives 
likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, what is the issue with verse 11? Well, it has to do with that word wives and how you translate the word wives. In the Greek, okay, y'all ready to go to New Testament class real quick? In the Greek, the word there is the word gynaikos. Gynaikos. Well, that can be translated two ways. Wives or women. So which one is it? Well, not all interpreters agree. How many of you in here have an NIV Bible? How many of you in here have a New American Standard Bible? How many of you have a RSV or a Revised Standard Version Bible? Okay, well, no, because, yeah, I won't say anything about that version, but uh, <laughs> NIV, NASB, how does your translation translate that word? Is it wives? No, it's women. Okay, that's interesting. But ESV that I read from, CSB, which used to be Holman Christian Standard, which now is Christian Standard Bible, and King James or New King James all translate that word as wives. Well, listen, friends, depending on what word you choose there, that has a really big implication for how you think about deacons. Is it their wives likewise? And by the way, the word there is not in the Greek. Not even the case of the word Gnikus suggests a possessive. It's not genitive, it's accusative. So it's, it's an objective noun. So is it women or is it wives? Because listen to the reading if it's women. Let them serve as deacons that they prove themselves. Women, likewise, must be dignified. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So here's the question. Is Paul allowing for women deacons? Is he establishing a third office for the church, pastor, elder, deacon, and now deaconess. And guys, I just don't know. <laughs> I'm telling, I want you just to know, and anybody in this room who is with me in the pastoral preaching meeting early this week can testify, I have wrestled. I have wrestled so hard to stand up here and give you an answer. I just don't have a good one. <laughs> And so I'm going to try to give you my best answer today. <laughs> because I feel the weight. You know, I want you, to, I want you to know what the Word of God says, and I want to be faithful to... <sighs> rightly divide the Word of God, because I know the answer to this question has implications for how some of you are able to serve in our church. All right, so thank you for that. I'm going to do my best to give my best understanding of it today, but I also want to say this. I reserve the right to change my mind because <laughs> I could be wrong. I could really be wrong. So let me just offer you the, the four kind of uh, positions that are offered typically when it regards, when it comes to this particular verse. All right. So firstly, the women are a part of the general orders of deacons. So it's possible that men or women can serve as deacons and there's no qualification on that. So it's women or men deacons. Secondly, it's a possibility that there are female deacons or deaconesses who correspond somehow to the male deacons. So there's an office of, of deacon and there's a specific office of deaconess and the deaconess office relates and uh, submits to the role of deacon. And so the deacons are lead servants, and there are some things that the men should not do that are more appropriate for women. And so we set apart a group of women as deaconesses to serve alongside them to do what only women can do, okay? Thirdly, there is the assistant to deacons version, like uh, the praiseworthy widows in 1 Timothy 5, and older women who train the younger women in Titus 2, 3. So uh, we two, three through five. So we have an assistant to deacons. So not fully deacons or deaconesses, but they come alongside deacons to serve in areas that are more appropriate for women to serve. And the final opinion, and one that has been predominantly opinion of Baptist and certainly this church here, is that he is specifically talking to deacons' wives. Okay. So, what is it? Well, what's the answer? Can women serve? Again, it's complicated. And some of it is the result of how we've complicated the church structure. If deacons have authority, 
even authority that's not directly given from the Bible, but has been entrusted to them from the church. And this has happened in the 20th century primarily when church's governing structure took on the form of management. Uh, Deacons became a management structure within the church or a, a kind of board of directors in the church. If there's authority given to the deacons and a woman steps into that, that role and begins to have an authority position in the church, then you immediately come into conflict with 1 Timothy 2. And so the way that we've been structured as Baptist churches because of the way that we've governed ourselves, not the way that we're governing ourselves here today right now, but the way that we've governed ourselves traditionally has prohibited women from serving in that role because we've given them authority. But it's not, it's not necessary that we give them that authority. It's certainly possible that we entrust eldership with the authority that's right to them and that deacons simply serve as servants and there's no restriction on women doing that if indeed Paul is introducing the office of deaconess here in 1 Timothy 3. But I am not convinced that he's introducing a new office. I'm not convinced that he is introducing the office of deaconess here. I do think my best reading today, right, and there are people in this room who disagree with me, and I will, I'm open to change. My best reading today is that he is speaking about wives. And here's where I think the benefit is for the church. I think what we see here is Paul providing for families to minister to the family of God. We have a family structure that is gifted to us by God, and these families are called to serve the family of God, such that if we begin to consider a man or a male for deacon responsibility, that his wife has to be considered as well, if he's married. Now, if he's not married, then this qualification doesn't apply to him yet, because unmarried men can be deacons, just like unmarried men can be pastor and elders. But if they are married, then we have to consider their wives under these same qualifications that are listed here in verse 11. Because they are going to be doing ministry together. Because there are going to be some times where the request of the church to the man is inappropriate for him to do alone. And so his wife becomes an integral ministry partner with him to take care of those specific things that are female-specific issues and needs in the church. And so the family unit becomes the ministry mechanism among the family of God. Now, if we embrace that role, here's the commitment we have to make to one another. Firstly, that when we begin to, or when we are looking at deacons, we do test their wives according to the prescription of Scripture here. But we also need to make accommodation for single women. And I don't know what to do that, about that yet. We need to have a conversation to make sure that there are single women who are widowed, and we can see this a little bit in 1 Timothy 5. We'll come back to that a little bit in a couple of weeks. But other women who are not married, that there is a, a place for them to thrive and flourish within the ministry of our church. And we've got to hold both those things together. Even if we don't formally set them apart or ordain them as deacons, it's really important that we give women in every possible way in the confines of Scripture the ability to lead and exercise their gifts. And so we've got to hold that in combination. And it may be that we get to the place where we say, because our structure is healthier or are more in alignment with Scripture, we're open to having this conversation. But I'm just not convinced that Paul introduces a different office in 1 Timothy 3. But I'm open to it. And I hope all of us are always operating in that kind of way where we sit before the text and we say, okay, this is what I think, this is what I hope, but over time of prayer and reflection and listening to arguments and, to, and, and, and wrestling with the text, if something different comes forward that we say, okay, guys, the Holy Spirit has led us to this conviction, this truth, and we got to move forward in it. We've got to operate in this way because it's what's best for the church. Okay? Everybody feel good? Okay. And listen, I know there are people on my staff, there are people who are other pastors in, in the church who would take a different approach to what I just said. And I'm grateful that, that they are willing to wrestle and to work with me and, 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 you know, and allow me to reserve the right. I'm grateful that you allow me to reserve the right to come up here and say today, this is the best interpretation I have of a very difficult passage 
And we're going to operate in this, but we're going to continue to have this conversation because we want to be about being biblically faithful and allowing the full giftedness of our church to be utilized for the glory of God. And that's our ultimate conviction. And however we do that in a way that honors and glorifies God is the best way forward. Okay? So, how should we respond to this? Okay, first, let's get out of the controversy for a second. Can we just rejoice in a God who has provided in this way for the church? You know, every one of us who's experienced difficulty in our lives, every one of us who's experienced need, every one of us who has encountered a church building should be grateful that there are people who serve that body and serve that building to make sure that it's usable and, and, and uh, has utilization profit for the church. That you have people who love you and come see you. I think about Cliff Caldwell, who I can't wait to get back full time at our church. That's a deacon in every sense of the word who makes it his job every week to go and visit anybody who's in the hospital or rehab centers. Because he knows that I can't go to the hospital every day. I can't go to the rehab facility every day. It doesn't mean I never go. It just means that I can't do it every day. But you know what he says? I'm retired, I can, so I'm going. You go do what you can do. I'm gonna go do what I can do. And we're gonna start the church together, right? What a provision from the Lord. And that leads to the second point. We should embrace God's design for the church. even if it's a little bit different than we grew up thinking. We should encourage pastors to do only what they can do, and we should encourage deacons to do what only they can do. And we should be grateful that we have both to meet the full needs of the church, right? Thirdly, we should be sensitive to the needs of our church and organized to meet them. The needs of the church in the 1950s and 1960s may not be the same needs that we have today, right? The security issue is one of those. As we see needs come up in the church, then we should be sensitive as the church to set people apart to do that work. Male deacons in lead roles, calling women and men around them to facilitate that work. I think about IT, right? In the 80s, did anybody in here think we needed an IT person? Right? But every week we have something potentially that's failing around us that's an IT need. Well, we can't always hire that out. People among us who have IT expertise, what an opportunity for you to be a deacon in our church and lead a group of people to serve the IT needs of our church. And finally, as the people of God, we should strive to only set apart qualified servants for the work of ministry. And I challenge you with that because, again, pastors and elders and deacons are ultimately accountable to you. And when we choose them, when we, when we bring a candidate forward and we say, hey, listen, here's who we're considering. It is your responsibility as a member of this body to consider 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 and say, does that person meet the requirement? If so, yes, we're going to set them apart. If no, then they're not ready yet. And that's okay. And further, if they begin to no longer meet these requirements— to do the work of ministry for their own sake and for the sake of the church to not allow them to continue to serve, which can be ugly sometimes, right? But also what's required of us. So I, I don't want you to, to take those moments lightly when we do a vote, when we affirm people and set people apart by the ministry of the church because you are saying something about that person and the requirements of that person whenever you do it. Let me just remind all of us, any act of service by a deacon is a reminder of the greatest act of service that we have ever seen. Any, any provision of God to meet a need here is a reminder of the way that he met our greatest need in Jesus Christ. In the same way that pastor elders work as under shepherds, pointing you to a great shepherd, deacons are called to serve as under servants, pointing you to the greatest servant, Jesus Christ, who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, who gave his life as a ransom for many, who served us by becoming obedient even to death on a cross so that our greatest need, our sinfulness, our separation from God could be met by him. And if you don't know him, and you've never seen how he served you, then take advantage of that act of service today. Wherever you are, would you bow your head, spend some time before the Lord.
Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Have you allowed his act of service to fulfill your greatest need? If not, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. We want that for you today. For the rest of us, where you rejoice in the beauty of the church, it's hard, but it's so good for us. How much God has provided for us as his people. And would you just commit, if you're a member of this church, to continually sit before the, the word of God in a humble way, asking him to help us navigate these difficult passages and the effects they have on our church. I don't want any woman to feel here today that they can't flourish and serve the Lord of God here. And I don't want any of us to over-restrict beyond what God has said. But it's not always easy. It's not always clear. So would you commit to, with humility, sitting before the Lord and his word? If you're a deacon, do you still meet these requirements? Are you striving to make sure that you continue to meet them? And then for all of us, will we reflect today on the way that God has served us in Christ, meeting our greatest need and give him the praise and honor for that? However you need to respond, let's do that faithfully right now. Father, meet us here. Help us to give you the glory and honor and praise you're due. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.